Indeed, Christ is enough for us. Everything we need is in Him. Thank you so much for reminding us of that. It really is a little taste of heaven that wherever we are from and wherever our background may be, we are united in this one belief and one hope, a love for Christ and a belief that He will be coming again soon. A couple of three years ago, Kelly and I were talking to a friend of ours and that very topic of Christ's return kind of came up. And this devout Christian lady admitted to us that she was genuinely not looking forward to that. Her simple, honest statement frankly floored me. How is it possible for someone who loves the Lord, someone who is active in their church, that they are not looking forward to seeing Christ? It's a scary thought facing the justice and judgment of someone who knows everything you have done. She continued in all sincerity. And I hazard a guess, many a good Christian, maybe even some of us sitting here in the Adventist church, proclaiming to be eagerly awaiting the return of Christ, share the sentiment. Yes, we are looking forward to Christ's return at some point in the future, just, just not now. It's scary. After all, isn't he making a list, checking it twice, going to find out who is naughty and nice? Doesn't he see you when you're sleeping? Know when you're awake? Know if you've been bad or good? So you better be good for goodness sakes. Uh, that's Santa Claus, y'all. But we think the same about God, do we not? Except what is at stake is not whether we get a present or a lump of coal in our stocking. What is at stake is whether we live or not. How can we have peace about this? Is there a way we can look forward to Christ's return without trepidation? After all, when someone talks of having a come-to-Jesus moment, it usually denotes a stressful event where one is presented with the ultimatum of do something or else. We do not think of it as a coming to a long-lost friend. 1 John says that perfect love casts out fear. God is love. He is perfect love. He's the golden standard of what love is. So why do we fear meeting Him? And the short answer is, we have been lied to. We are in a war for our hearts and minds, and it is a war of propaganda. A campaign has been mounted to smear God and His character, to misrepresent Him, to make us fear Him, and to get us to turn against him. If you have been following along in the readathon, you will be familiar with all of this. If you haven't been following along, here is the issue in a nutshell. Lucifer, one of the angels, decided that he wanted to be God. And you can read the detailed account in either Patriarchs and Prophets or the Great Controversy, but Isaiah 14 sums it up quite nicely. 
it works. Isaiah says, how you, how, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation, on the farthest side of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. And so Lucifer, which means light-bearer, becomes Satan, which means adversary. The Bible doesn't specifically tell us what Satan said to the angels to get a third of them to join him. But from what Ellen White tells us, it was very similar to what he told Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, the fruit, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You don't need God for life. You can't trust God. God is a bully holding you down with threats of violence, and if you would only take matters into your own hands, you too could be God. And once Adam and Eve acted on this information, or should I say disinformation, look at what followed. If you drop down just a couple of verses in Genesis 3, God shows up in the garden to spend time with Adam and Eve, and Eve, as was his custom, but they are nowhere to be found. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. I was afraid, so I hid. Fear of God was the immediate result of sin. But God was quick to make it clear that there was no need to be afraid of Him. He took the responsibility to fix the problem and also placed enmity not between God and mankind, but between the serpent and mankind. So how would God fix the problem? What was the problem? On the surface, the problem seems to be obedience, or should I say, disobedience. God said it, you didn't do it, well, now we have a problem. But go one step further, because what was brought into question by Satan wasn't the obedience, but the reason for obedience. Why should you obey someone you cannot trust? Why should you obey someone who does not have their, your best interests at heart? Why should you obey someone who does, who, when to do so, would only play into their sinister agenda and at your expense? You wouldn't obey someone whom you didn't trust unless they threaten you and then for at least a time, you will obey 
because of fear. The problem of sin is distrust. Do you trust God or do you trust yourself? As the song says, is God everything that you need? And the biggest obstacle God had to overcome is the fact that we no longer trusted the one on whom we are dependent for life. It wasn't by accident that the very first thing that Satan attacked was the source of life. You will not surely die. The gift of God, which is life. Satan, in that one sentence, twisted into a weapon of coercion. You don't need God for life, but God will take away your life in order to hold you under His thumb. Well, the first thing God had to do was to essentially suspend reality. We are dependent on God for life, and if we cut ourselves off from the source of life, the only possible outcome is death. The problem is, no one would understand that. This was natural consequence and not an act of revenge. Says Ellen White, the inhabitants of heaven and of other worlds being unprepared to comprehend the nature and consequences of sin could not have seen the justice and mercy of God in the destruction of Satan. Had he been immediately blotted from existence, they would have served God from fear rather than from love. The influence of the deceiver would not have been fully destroyed, nor would the spirit of rebellion have been utterly eradicated. Evil must be permitted to come to maturity. For the good of the entire universe through ceaseless ages, Satan must more fully develop his principles that his charges against the divine government might be seen in their true light by all created beings that the justice and mercy of God and the immutability of his law might forever be placed beyond all question. God allowed life to continue, even in those who had made the decision to separate themselves from Him, the source of life, so that time and events might show what the truth really was. The next thing God had to do was to present evidence and actively show that Satan's allegations were false and make truth plain for all to see. Here's what Ellen White says. Satan sought to intercept every ray of light from the throne of God. He sought to cast his shadow across the earth that men might lose the true view of God's character and that the knowledge of God might become extinct in the earth. He had caused truth of vital importance to be so mingled with error that it had lost its significance. The law of Jehovah was burdened with needless exactions and traditions, and God was represented as severe, exacting, revengeful, and arbitrary. 
he was pictured as one who could take pleasure in the suffering of his creatures. The very attributes that belong to the character of Satan, the evil one represented as belonging to the character of God. But Jesus came to teach men of the Father to correctly represent Him before the fallen children of earth. Angels could not portray the character of God, but Christ, who was a living impersonation of God, could not fail to accomplish the work. The only way in which He could set and keep men right was to make Himself visible and familiar to their eyes. That men might have salvation, He came directly to man and became partaker of His nature. The only way to set and keep men right for God was for God to make Himself and the truth about Himself known by coming directly to us in person. And by the way, Satan has managed to complicate even this by shrouding it in fancy Latin terminology. To set right became justification, which comes from the Latin justificare. And then to keep right became sanctification from the Latin sanctificare. And we have developed systems of theology around these two words when it's as simple as set right and keep right. Through his life, death and resurrection, Christ revealed to us the truth about God, truth about life and its source, and he also unmasked Satan for who he really was. It was interesting to observe some of the interactions during Jesus' life, which exposed the fact that even Satan doesn't believe the lies that he's peddling. In Matthew 8, we find an account of Jesus crossing the Lake of Galilee and encountering two demon-possessed men. Demons, you probably know, are fallen angels who had followed Satan. And so they knew who Jesus was. And he knew who they were. There was a history between them. And so they see him, they recognize him, and listen what they say to Jesus. When he, he, Jesus, arrived at the other side in the region of Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men came from the tombs and met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, Son of God, they shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? They see Jesus and their minds immediately go to torture. Why? They were obviously entirely taken by Satan's lie and were fully expecting Jesus to act in a ruthless way because they believed that to be his character. So, how do we know this is all bunk and spin on the part of Satan? Have a look at the time when, Je when Satan tried to tempt Jesus. 
Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Bow down and worship me. Are those the words of someone who is afraid? No. See, even Satan does not believe his own press, but he's more than happy to foster mistrust and fear between God and his creation. But in this text, we also see the true motivation of Satan. Worship me. As the text in Isaiah said, Satan's motivation has always been to become God and for all creation, even the Creator Himself, to worship Him. And now, as we come to the close of this whole saga, the evidence having been presented, we see an angel flying through the air with the gospel, the good news about the kind of person God really is. And he makes this call. Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, and the springs of water. The gospel, the good news about God has been proclaimed to all nations. The evidence presented. And we all now have to make a judgment and answer the question, what then shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ. The angel calls us to find in favor of God, to examine the evidence and judge God worthy of our reverence and worship. As Paul says in Romans 3, Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. I won't take time to read it now, but you can consider it homework for this afternoon. Yes, you get homework even from church. In Daniel 7, when the court sits and the books are opened, what is the result? The dominion and glory and the kingdom are given to Christ. The judgment is about Christ. Does this negate the investigative judgment? By no means. The inhabitants of heaven are very interested in who is coming to join their, who's coming up there to join them. You know, there are some questionable characters that are about to move in, and, well, there goes the neighborhood. It's nice that Christ is willing to vouch for us, but before they can take His word for it, in the light of all that has gone on, they first had to determine if Christ Himself is trustworthy. If He is then they will have no problem accepting His Word. If He isn't, what's the point? 
So the first angel gives the good news about God and calls us to examine the evidence. And in light of the evidence, give God the respect and worship that he deserves. The second angel then comes along and says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. I personally believe that Babylon is any man-made system. Anything that we have built to put our trust in. We have built systems and institutions, and we have faith that somehow they will do the right thing for us. The world is a mess. I don't think anyone would disagree with that. Do you believe Biden will fix it? Do you believe Trump will fix it? Do you believe our system of government will fix it with all its checks and balances? How well is that working out? With everyone working hard to tilt the checks and balances in their favor. And that's just assuming they don't just ignore them altogether, as has happened this week. Do you believe a different system of government might be the answer? Maybe we should put our faith in our scientific institutions. A reason and evidence-based approach holds so much promise. Except the moment you peel away the layer of censorship, you find that science is nowhere near as settled as some make it out to be. So what is the truth? Who do you trust? What motivates different players? Should we maybe trust the financial institutions? Or maybe we should put faith in ecclesiastical organizations. A church institution wouldn't lead us astray, would it? I recently came across this headline introducing the Pope's latest encyclical, Fratelli Tutti. A comprehensive blueprint for social engineering that Pope believes would unite us all to save ourselves and our planet. Yes, we will save ourselves. We will save the planet. That is how arrogant we have become. No church, no denomination, no pastor can or will save us, except to the extent that they point us to the one who can save us, Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can heal and transform a sinful heart. Anything built by sinful men that we may put our trust in will collapse, says the second angel. Then the third angel comes, and we don't like to talk about much about his message because it is a fierce message. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. 
There will be no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and its image, or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. For those who have put their trust in man-made things and institutions, when they collapse, it will be a time of terrible torment. They will have no rest day or night. Can you imagine? Everything you have ever trusted, everything that you have built your life around has collapsed. What do you turn to? Where do you go? What do you do? If you are determined to keep God out of the picture, there is nothing else to hold on to. It may be hard to imagine that people would be that obstinate. But we see this kind of thing more often than we think. A few years back, I read a fascinating book by a British doctor, James Lefano, called Why Us? And in the book, the good doctor goes, on, goes into great detail as to how the recent advances in science have made the theory of evolution, as it stands, completely obsolete and untenable. And he then essentially goes on to say something to the effect of, and I have to apologize here, I have to go from memory since the book is no longer available at our library, but he says something to the effect of, while some people may look at this evidence and say, the theory of evolution is incorrect. Therefore, it has to be God. This is not the case. But we do have to take an honest look at the theory of evolution and come up with a better explanation that is more in line with our current scientific understanding. I do not know this man's heart. He seems to be genuinely exploring the evidence. But the sentiment is interesting. There has to be a better explanation for what we see that doesn't include God. Richard Dawkins, faced with the difficulties evolution has in explaining the origins of life, suggested aliens might have seeded life on this planet. So long as these aliens are not called God, you know, just so we understand each other here. If we put our trust in ourselves, in the institutions we have built, and by extension ultimately put our trust in the beast, and give him our worship, declare him worthy of our trust and loyalty, when things finally collapse, it will be a time of terrible torment. The time of God's wrath will be a terrible thing. Yes, I did say God's wrath. In fact, the third angel said it, which raises an interesting question. If God is going to get the rebels at the end, why did we have to go through all these centuries of misery to get there? What is God's wrath? Romans 1 clearly defines it, and we looked at that text when I preached back in the spring, so I'll just hit the high points. Romans 1.18 says, the wrath of God is being revealed, 
and then continues to describe how people clearly saw the evidence of God and His righteousness, but deliberately decided to ignore it and defy it, even though they were convicted of it. Therefore, in His wrath, God gave them over to their sinful heart's desires to do what ought not to be done. I would strongly encourage you to add second half of Romans 1 to your reading homework for this afternoon. See, when the four winds are let go, when God completely removes all protection and all restraint, when God in His wrath lets people go to experience the full magnitude of their sin and depravity in full technicolor, it will be a terrible time. It will call for the patient endurance of the saints and those who have and hold on to the faith of Christ. So much so that they will consider blessed those who had gone to their rest in Christ and will not have to experience this. So where is justice in all this? There's so much injustice in the world and we're trying to set stuff right and we're kind of looking to God to set it right. Is this the justice we are hoping for? That those who are advocating evil will get to experience the full effect of what they had wished for? Or maybe that in the end they will be destroyed. Does that set things right? As we consider this, let me tell you a true story. Sang Won Han was a student at Newbold College in the United Kingdom. He had come, to, he had come from South Korea to, to the UK to learn English, to build a bright future for himself. And he had been in the UK for just over two months, and he had just enjoyed going on tour with a college choir during spring break. It was Monday evening, March 17, 2003, when he went to town with a group of friends from college to have some fun. Unfortunately, the driver had had a bit too much fun during the course of the evening, and about midnight was racing back to the college with his four passengers driving under the influence. About a half mile away from the college, he lost control of the vehicle going round the roundabout and slammed the car into a big road sign. Someone was riding in the middle of the back seat and at the impact he was catapulted through the windshield and landed on the pavement some 20 to 30 feet from the car and died from his injuries. In a small, close-knit community like Newbold College, which only had about 300 students, this had a very profound impact on all of us. About a week later, Seng Won's parents came over to hold a memorial service and take his body back to South Korea. And while they were there, his father asked to speak to the young man who drove the car that fateful night. None of us envied him on that appointment. 
But as we found out what happened in that meeting, tears rolled down all over the campus once again. The father of Senwon had embraced the young man and told him he forgave him and loved him. And so I ask you, what is justice? Is it the three years in jail that the court decided would be just punishment for this young man? Is it to carry the guilt, knowing that your actions killed a friend, and then having to face his family? Is it the forgiveness of the father? What would be true justice? It would be for someone to be restored back to life, would it not? Because in its essence, justice is to make something right after it went wrong. But the way we try to set things right here on earth is quite limited. We try to set things right by taking away something, usually property or freedom, from the person who took something away from another. And so everyone just ends up with less. We often cannot restore a situation to its original state, so we are stuck with punishment as a means of justice, a way to try and balance things out. But God has the power to completely restore what was lost. Saying one didn't want to die, his parents didn't want him to die, even the driver didn't want him to die. So true justice for all, in this case, would have been his restoration to life. I would be willing to bet that if given the choice, those who had lost their loved ones to war and concentration camps, which would much rather have their loved ones back than having to settle for seeing Hitler punished. I would be willing to bet that the families of the 3,000 people who perished on 9-11 would trade the news of bin Laden's death any day if they could only see their loved one walk through the door once again. We can't do that. But God can. After all the wrongs of this world, the good news is that God can set all things right by restoring them, not just to their previous state in a sinful world, but can restore them to His original ideal. God can completely heal and restore. He can restore the loved ones you have lost. He can restore the innocence that was taken away from you. He can restore your health. He can restore your mobility. He can restore your abused body and mind. He can restore this planet and bring peace and happiness to the universe once again. And the best news of all is, He will. This is true justice. This is truly setting things right. If all you are looking for is revenge, if your heart is consumed with a desire to see someone fry, I'm not sure I want to live next to you for the whole of eternity. 
It is likely that among the lost there will be those who are near and dear to us. Do you really want to be standing on the walls of the new Jerusalem chanting, burn baby, burn, as your loved ones are consumed by the glory of God? When all is said and done, there will be only two groups in the universe. Those who fully trust, those who in full trust and confidence say to God, your will be done. And those who have declared it preferable to die than to have to depend on God for anything. To whom God will sadly say, your will be done. In His justice, God will fully restore this world and His universe to its original design. The costly evidence provided over these tumultuous centuries will once again fill us with confidence and trust that God is good, that He has our best interests at heart, and that His ways are best for us. And St. John in Revelation describes what it looks like when God in His justice truly sets things right. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. He then continues, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. God is not someone to be afraid of. God is someone to be a friend of. His return is not something that we need to fear. God loves us. We are His children. And He is longing to embrace us and make all those owies better. His justice will truly make things right by restoring that which has been lost, by healing us and giving us the gift of life according to His original design. We can truly look forward to His return because His return and His justice promise all these things. But until then, let us encourage one another. Let us carry on. 
in the challenging times ahead of us, let us patiently endure with full trust in God, His goodness and His promises until that day when He comes to take us to our true home. Amen.